I'm Lisa Bontesumi, and this is the Ath Mindset podcast series on sports epreneur. This podcast series is a space for conversations with athletes, coaches, practitioners, and stakeholders in sports. And it's where those individuals share their perspectives, experiences, and thoughts on mental health in sports. Eric Kazimoff of Sports Epreneur is generously hosting the Ath Mindset podcast series on his platform as he deeply believes that these conversations are essential and deserve to be prioritized. This is the Ath Mindset podcast series on Sports Epreneur. Sports Epreneur, the content platform where sports, entrepreneurship, and mental health collide. If you are looking to start a podcast or create original content, you have to talk with the team at Sports Epreneur. I work with them and I vouch for them. It's that simple. Go to sportse.io to learn more. Teresa, I'm so glad that we get a chance to chat after all these months, after connecting so long ago. It's been, has it been a year? And just everything that's happened and is continuing to happen. I just appreciate you coming on with us and allowing us to spend some time with you. So thank you for being here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. People might not be able to see, but Teresa got her hook up in the back right now. She is a power lifter. I can see her whole setup. It looks amazing. But let's start there. You are many identities, I'm sure. Teacher, wife, and others I don't even know about, but you are a high-performing power lifter. Like, yeah, tell me, at what level are you competing at right now? Well, if you want my totally honest answer, at the moment, my competition level is zilch. Um, That's kind of a temporary (laughs) status due to a couple of surgeries. But generally speaking with powerlifting, the highest ranking you can really call yourself is elite or internationally elite. It's based off of a DOT score, formerly a Wilk score. So I guess you could go something by that. But I mean, regardless of score, I'm still relatively new to the sport. I've only been competing about five years. And when you're talking powerlifters who sometimes get their entire lives dedicated to it, I'm still very much a rookie in that regard. So I'm constantly learning from the best. That's amazing. I'm sorry to hear about your injuries. I'm sure you have a plan to mentally and physically continue to recover. But that's interesting. Powerlifting for five years is a short time. I'm surprised to hear that. It's the type of sport where when you're talking about speed, power, and strength development, it really goes through years of experience. You can tell the difference in kind of that... You hear the phrase a lot in strength training, like newbie games, where as you're kind of learning coordination, that type of development, just honing in on posture positioning and your technique throughout the list, you really get to blossom. And those types of skills take a long time to develop. So coming from somebody who had a really athletic background growing up, I kind of did a little bit of everything. It made a little bit of a smoother transition going into the sport because I did have some of that development early on, but it's still super specific. So powerlifting... For any of the listeners who aren't aware, it's a sport that's really just about three key lifts. It's about the squat, the bench, and the deadlift. When you step on the platform, you get three attempts at each lift, and the goal is as much weight as possible. So we're talking about some pretty significant loads. It's really not uncommon for somebody in a smaller weight class like mine. I compete either at the 52 kilo weight class or the 57 kilo weight class, which is about 114 and a half pounds to 125 and a half pounds in that range. I mean, we're looking at women that'll squat probably two and a half, three times their body weight, if not more. We're talking about women my size benching over 200 pounds. 
and deadlifting over 400. And I'm really just comparing myself to other drug tested users or uh, drug tested competitors. So we're women who aren't using any type of performance enhanced supplements. I didn't know you were that tiny. How tall are you? I am not quite 5'1", but on my driver's when I was 16, I did convince them to put 5'1 on there. So I'm still, <laughs> I got an extra half an inch out of that. <laughs> no, thank you for breaking down though what powerlifting is and those three skills. I have a client who is a powerlifter and she's actually going to go back and compete after two years now in a meet in a couple of weeks. So we've been fine-tuning some of her mental skills and the approach, but I love hearing it described like that so people can know and are aware. So you said you were an athlete growing up and then just five years ago, you found powerlifting. What sports did you play as a young girl? For the most part, if you can name it, I tried it. I started off really with just kind of your more run-in-the-mill sports. You know, I tried basketball, bad t-ball, baseball. I ran track and field. Got a little more adventurous into things like competitive cheerleading. I was a competitive diver as well. When I got into college, honestly, my primary focus was I just was so fearful of weight gain. You know, I had some body dysmorphia images self-reflecting that I wanted to fight. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do a lot of cardio. And then one day the cardio machines were full. And I said, well, I'll go up on the track and run. So from there, I ended up running 5Ks, 10Ks, 10 milers, half marathons. And my body just said, nope, can't handle this. So from there, my husband and I, we joined a gym shortly after we got married. And he taught me how to squat, bench, and deadlift. So I was at this local bodybuilding gym, just kind of repping out some squats. And I think at the time, I was probably squatting around like 225, 245, which was about double my body weight. And I remember a gentleman came over to me and he said, hey, you know, you really should consider competing. And I said, competing? And the atmosphere was all about bodybuilding. And I have so much respect for people who do that. But for me as an elementary teacher, at the time I taught middle school. So I was teaching kind of like adolescents. I didn't feel comfortable with the pictures and the posing. Kudos to those who do. It just wasn't And so I said, no, I said, I love that you guys do it. I love seeing your progress, but I'm going to pass. And he said, oh no, I'm in powerlifting. And I said, what is that? So (laughs) about it, I said, okay, I can do this. So I did my first competition. I think it was in January of 2016 or 2017, one of the two. And my husband looked at me right after. He goes, this is not the only one of these we're going to do, is it? And I said, no way. I was absolutely addicted from day one. So things kind of spiraled pretty rapidly. I did a few local meets, just kind of trying out the different federations. There are different federations for powerlifting that you can compete in. And after kind of trying out, seeing what I liked, I decided to primarily compete in USA powerlifting, which for the majority of my lifting career was the number one most popular drug tested field in the country with some pretty high international competition um, opportunities as well. So I did a couple local meets and I was set to compete in regionals. I had a bit of a back injury set me back and I didn't get to compete. And so about two months before nationals, I looked at my husband and I said, you know what? I actually qualified for nationals. Do you want to go? So we booked a trip across the country. We live in Pennsylvania. We're like, we're going to Spokane, Washington now. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was only my third or fourth major competition that was nationals. I actually qualified to compete at the Arnold Sports Festival um, for their Raw Challenge. So they called it like the, the A7 Pro Raw was the year that I was there. So things really went quickly for me. I just became 
and totally focused on it. It was my be all end all goal. It kind of consumed all of my thoughts. You know, I was constantly focused on diet and training and I was all in from day one. That's amazing. Like you've said so much in that little time. So I want to break some of it down. Absolutely. When you said body dysmorphia, you and your own journey have learned what that is and what that means. Break that down for my listeners about what is it for one and how did it manifest for you back then? So I guess the way I see it is that body dysmorphia is kind of not seeing yourself for the way that others may see you. It's always that nitpicky and focusing on all the little things about your body they wish you could change as opposed to recognizing for what it is and what it can do, which ultimately, I mean, that's what it's about. You know, we need to recognize our bodies for what they're able to do and perform for us. So at the time, having grown up and always been seen from my small stature, being 5'1", I always felt like I had this picture to uphold of how I wanted to present myself to others. That was my primary focus. I didn't know much about nutrition and quality fuel for my body at the time. So I was just kind of in that lost meandering of just wanting to have a body image that looked like this idealistic picture of what society says that women should look like. And it, it was a struggle at the time. And it's actually quite different from a different form of I guess I shouldn't say different form, but a different manifestation of body dysmorphia and kind of regulation of eating and understanding as a weight class dependent athlete that I've gone through a couple of years. So that was a massive 10 year transition, kind of two manifestations of the same idea. Mm, uh No, that's so important to talk about for women who train, who compete, especially in your sport where there's a bulk that has to happen. I mean, you're building muscles. I mean, people, I'm looking at her right now. She's tiny, but she's dense. She's muscular. (laughs) But I think that the societal pressure, how old were you when that body dysmorphia started to occur for you? Were you a teenager? Actually, no. I, I think being so involved in sports and so focused on performance that at a young age, it wasn't something that really kind of crossed my mind. It wasn't until starting college, you started to have these ideas of like the freshman 15, when everybody goes away, you're going to gain weight. And that that fear really is what fueled it more so than anything else. So up until that point, I was great. It was right at that transition, probably about like 18, 19 years old that I started to feel it. Yeah. And the fear is interesting, the fear of not being able to uphold that ideal look or body weight that society forces us to think about. And then you're in a, yeah, what was it the way you talked about? Like a a calorie muscle kind of watching and counting kind of sport. I can see how it can become, develop something like a disordered eating or like being too obsessive about each one of those and how they impact you and then how they impact how you look. I mean, that's complicated and complex. Absolutely. It's a very dynamic system that can be very easy to get stuck into. You know, for years, I competed in the 57 kilo weight class, which to my understanding in most federations doesn't exist anymore. It's now a 56 kilo, so a little bit lighter. But I naturally sit in between two weight classes. So my Uh body wants around 120, 122 pounds, uh-huh. which means if I compete against the heavier fields, I'm disadvantaged. And to cut down to that lighter weight class, 52 kilo, which I have done a few times, it's very difficult on my body. Um, I have to be very strictly regulating what I'm eating, 
being very focused on fueling my body with the appropriate micronutrients to the point that when I'm in a competition prep, I'm weighing my broccoli to make sure that I can make weight Ooh. leading competitions. It can be very intense. So it's this give and take dynamic. So I was actually just thinking about this the other day. I know that you're on Instagram. Have you seen the new feature they added that allows you to like tap in and respond to little questions that somebody else started? No, I haven't seen that. Uh-uh. Oh, my personal favorite is the one where it's like, no lies, upload your favorite picture of your dog. I will do that one every <laughs> single time. <laughs> Yes, it's another identity of yours. You are a dog mom. Yes. I am a dog mom. To great Pyrenees, no less. So if anybody has great Pyrenees, you know that they are bigger than me. <laughs> right. Right. Basically, polar bears. But anyways, this new feature, I recently saw one that somebody had shared that said something like, share a picture of you at your leanest and kind of reflecting on this notion of recognizing the significance of kind of busting the myth for how many people are sharing their leanest photos. And yes, that is definitely something to be proud of when you work for that. But if you are in a mental state or a mindset where that's what it's all about is just that look, that can be a really dark place for some people. And I so I shared a picture from when I had just finished a weight cut to get myself to competition prep. I was 112.9 pounds. That number is scarred into my brain. And my body hurt for it. It was not easy. And so I was quick to share that picture and just kind of put out there that for me, that was disordered eating. That was giving up on memories with my family. That was not getting to have dessert with my husband. That was sitting down to watch the movie with my family and not having the popcorn. And it's very difficult to find that line between living your life and also recognizing that I want to compete at the highest level possible. So it very much is a give and take and knowing when to do it and how to do it. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for breaking that down. I mean, I think that there's a way that competitive athletes, yourself and folks in other sports, people looking in glorify it. It'd be like, oh, she gets to compete. She gets to do this. She gets to travel. Da, da, da. But like, there's less attention and compassion to the sacrifices and the work that it takes for you to get there. They glorify the outcome in the sort of product of who you are and don't really understand that it is hard. I mean... It's hard for anyone, especially a woman, and especially a woman who's competing, again, in a sport that is based very heavily on weight, like a boxer, right? Because you compete in a weight class or a wrestler, right? Exactly. And there's some variation for it where certain sports you can weigh in up to 24 hours ahead of time. And some powerlifting federations you do, you weigh in the day before, which gives you more flexibility to use strategies like water cutting, if appropriate, and you understand the but with a two-hour weight cut, you really can't do that. I mean, I've got two hours from the time that I weigh myself to the time that I'm on the platform. To realistically do that with any type of water cutting and dehydration, you risk serious not only your actual performance on the platform, but there's some serious health concerns as well for understanding how you respond to that. So that's not even an option in that regard. So you truly do have to kind of constrain yourself to reach whatever that body weight may be. And it can be a very difficult process for, especially like you said, a lot of women. And I don't think enough people talk about it. Yeah. And I think 
the female triad is something that has been talked about more and more and is becoming more something that we talk about. And it could be a sensitive topic, but I think that you and I are right here with it. I mean, the other part of it is the disruption to the normal menstrual cycle that a woman has that people, again, don't talk about so much and aren't sensitive and compassionate enough to it. And it can be scary, frightening, and just confusing when a woman hits that where where their period stops. Like, oh my God, what's happening? Or it's irregular, or there's a whole other level of stress that comes from that. That again, I think, you know, is not talked about enough and is something that women risk. I want to say that they risk that happening. And then how do we get it back while still competing? Or do we not? Right. Exactly. And I think one of the things that a lot of people overlook too is that, and I've even had friends who have said this before who are very competitive. They say, Great, I lost my period. Finally, I don't have to worry about that anymore because they see it as truly just that one event. But what we're overlooking is not that event or that one time in your life. What is happening that we can't see? What is going on with your body processes? Because that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Even women don't understand the female body on some level. And it's like we see our periods as a hindrance or a bother or something that's annoying when it's a natural process that we have that we need to support. You've been pretty open in our discussions about your own mental health journey, the body dysmorphia as part of it. What do you feel comfortable sharing in this moment about your mental health journey? Pretty much anything. Honestly, I'm very much an open book. I think the most important thing is that kind of for me, differentiating between when I think of mental health and when I think of emotional health. In one regard, and I'm not sure where I picked this up, somewhere from a book or a podcast or presumably both, But when I think about mental health, I think of chemical processes, diagnoses, things that are kind of beyond my control. But when I think of emotional health, I think of it as just like my everyday wellness. I'm going to work on my cardiovascular training. I'm going to work on my resistance training. I'm going to work on my nutritional intake. I need to work on supporting my emotional health as well. So for me, especially in the past year, I've had a lot of things to kind of work through. So my emotional health, I had two pretty major knee surgeries in the past year, which I am currently out of competing while I kind of rebuild and reassess. I have a lifelong back condition. I actually suffered. It was called a PARS fracture in my low back. It was at my L5-S1 joint. My spine fractured. And then upon impact, my entire spine shifted. You can actually write it down my back and kind of feel that shift. Scoliosis and some disc issues as well. So I've had a plethora of health issues that have kind of plagued me throughout the last year that have really challenged me, not just this year, but previously to kind of find the ways that I can work on supporting my emotions in the sense that I can cope with those things that I'm facing in my everyday life and still feel successful and still kind of be productive in my work life, my home life and my academic life or training life as well for as an athlete. Yeah, yeah. No, I've never heard it broken down like that. Mental health and emotional health. I mean, often conversations around like we all are born with mental health, just like we're born with physical health. And there are just like in physical health, some genetic components, some things we're born with, like we're born with brown eyes. We can't really change that. If we're born with diabetes or we come into it or have a disposition for it, we have to learn how to cope with it. So same with mental health, right? If we don't have enough skills or strategies to cope with mental health, it can become a mental health disorder 
and be more serious and be diagnosable. But I like that on the day-to-day, the emotional health is how you sustain and maintain how you feel about yourself, how you connect, exercising those tools, doing those things. I know since you're an open book, I will say like we connected a while back about therapy and I was able to, and I'm so happy to have hooked you up with the therapist, given you options, coached you on how to interview them and was really serious about like the list I gave you needed to be like, I had to vet it. (laughs) I was not going to pass it on to you until I fully vetted it. So I know that you're very happy with your therapist. You're doing some great work, I'm sure. What is it about being in that process? And what is it that you like about having that person in your life? I think what it means the most to me is kind of having that outside opinion, but also recognizing that it's a person who in their field has the opportunity to help. So I'm an elementary teacher right now. I teach fifth grade stuff. And when my students have something that they need, whether it's an academic need for some sort of specific focus, they need something for addressing perhaps a learning disability. Maybe they need something for a behavioral issue. Whatever it may be, that's kind of my area of expertise where I can help them blossom and be their best version of themselves. But I'm also removed from their situation or whatever's going on with their friends, with their home life. That's not me. That's not involving me. So I kind of have that third person perspective. And to me, getting to work with a therapist is very much the same way. It's having that person who is able to step back, think more objectively. And again, this idea of like my emotional health, she's not going to have that emotional response to an event the same way that I will. So it allows me to step back and kind of have that rational thought process. Looking back on it, we can kind of encourage, discuss, and work through together. Uh I love it. I love it. And I love being that person to people, to athletes. It's exactly that. Like I'm not emotionally connected to your process, to your life. There's a sort of coaching aspect that I'm alongside the athlete I work with. And so I love the way you described it, like letting the professional in their area of skill and expertise help you in that area. You say that you love it. And I think so often there's this misconception that working with a therapist, like, oh, well, somebody's listening to you because you're paying them. Don't get me wrong. I teach my students And I get a paycheck for that, but I do care about my students and I do want to support them. And when I look at my students and I tell them that I love them, I mean that. And I know that as a therapist, like hearing somebody who's passionate about their job in the same regard, you know, you do care about your clients as well. It's obviously a very different relationship from what we might have with our friends, our family members and et cetera. But it's still that type of a relationship that you can build and continue to grow and able to help the other person. No, thank you for saying that. I think that, you know, when people say, even like when we talked about it, how do you pick a therapist? How do you like interview them? How do you shop around? I'm telling people that it's, do you feel like, you know, credentials aside, expertise aside, do you feel like you could relate and connect to this person as a human? Absolutely. You know, do you feel like you could build a relationship with this person? Yes. Something we talked about why that vetting process. I love that you put it that way. Why that's so important. You learn so much in a conversation with somebody. And the person that I ended up working with, it was kind of like a game of phone tag at first. I would call and leave a message, and she would call me back and leave a message. And even in those initial interactions, you learn so much about personalities. And again, like we said, like it's a real relationship. We have to pass that idea of, well, you're paying somebody for their service. Fine, that's true, but it's still a real relationship. And if the click isn't there, 
you're ready to move on and try somebody else. Now, that's why you said you gave me that list. I made so many phone calls in order to find the right. (laughs) (laughs) And good for you for staying with that process because it can be rigorous with phone tag, insurance, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, if I wanted to be rich, it wouldn't be being a therapist. It's not about the money. It's about the opportunity to impact someone's life with the skills that I have, that I've trained. And I love that. I do. And so, I mean, I cry sometimes with my clients. They evoke me. Their lives are serious and meaningful. And I'm right there in it with them, you know, as much as they allow and as much as our relationship is appropriate to at that level. But like the general trust and rapport that's built at the beginning is really something that I co-create with the athletes I work with. And they take it the way they want to take it. And I'm right there. So it's just, yeah. I do care and deeply love my clients because they're doing the work. Y'all are doing the work. I just facilitate it. I'm going to have to get you. I have a sticker in my car that says, I became a teacher for the money and fame. I feel like I need one of this for you as well. You know, you're fully in it. You know, to be able to kind of foster that relationship and to grow with it, it's incredible to hear it coming from your side of the table, so to speak, because it is all about that ability to find the technique that you know that a person needs and to be able to kind of present it to them in a way that they can then implement in their lives in order to reap the benefits of it. And it, you're doing that. And I love that. It's amazing to hear yeah. it, both as a client of a therapist and then kind of that teacher mentality, being able to relate with it. I love it. Oh, nice. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we're cut from the same cloth. We serve humans just in a different capacity. And yeah, I want that bumper sticker, whatever you have. <laughs> just edit it out. <laughs> That's hilarious. And you know, I think that you and I have our stories and our stories in life impact our purpose and our passion. So there's something about our own human story that leads us to want to serve humans and teach humans. And teaching one human in the same classroom or a different athlete in the same team isn't going to be the same because they're individualized human beings. They take things in differently. And like, it's our job to know that, right? To deepen that connection and realize it and then approach them from that with that knowledge. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, completely. Well, I think what it's also highlighting is that as someone who is a high-level competitive powerlifter, usually when you're healthy, that you actually also have a full-time job. This is like something you do extra. It's something that you are moved to do because it makes you feel good. Like, how would you describe when you said earlier, I'm addicted? This isn't the last meet I'm going to be in. Like, how does lifting make you feel? I think I want to point out that it's not even just about me, it's the recognition that I'm part of a larger community. So, kind of in my area, I've met in person that I've bumped into at local gyms two or three people who actually either compete in powerlifting or know what it is that are females, maybe 10 total if I include all of the men that I've met in my local area. But once you go into kind of that competition atmosphere and you're surrounded by a lot of people that are able to share that experience with you, it's a sense of fulfillment that it's not just you anymore. Yes, it's a youth sport. Yes, you're competing for your best numbers, but you have others to share it with. So for me, especially teacher where I spend a lot of time with just my students. The bulk of my day is spent with 
10 and 11 year olds, to have that type of community where I can connect with other like-minded adults is phenomenal. Especially, I mean, I am a 31 year old woman and I compete in a sport and I don't have any children and I'm a dog mom. And in many ways, as a lot of my friends started to have families, we broke away where we started to have a lot of differences between us. So when I stepped into the powerlifting community and I found a lot of people that are like me, it was amazing to kind of give me that community back that I'd been missing. No, that's a really important differentiation. I think just because it's an individual sport, that doesn't mean you have a team or community around you sharing and supporting each other and encouraging each other, traveling together maybe to different meets, competing in different weight classes. You know, like I think that's really important to really point out. What do you think if we talk about mental health being one of a few power lifters, but also one of a few female power lifters, what kind of feedback do you get from like your family or friends? I know your husband's already got you like there's nothing wrong there but like have you had to handle like negative feedback or like persuasion to not do it or how has that been i can only imagine that you have so that's why i'm asking (laughs) i definitely have um probably the biggest thing and this is just like the, the littlest thing it's kind of differentiating with people what i do like I had said, when I first started and somebody asked me if I wanted to compete, I was very quick to differentiate with bodybuilding. As an elementary teacher, you know, we are held to a very unique standard as far as expectations. So uh, sometimes my students learn what bodybuilding is and they'll come up to me and they're like, Mrs. Brown, are you a bodybuilder? And I have to say, <laughs> well, no, I'm not. So you probably, because there, there's some big local competition, like that's not what I do. So the first step is of course, kind of educating and just kind of letting people know what it is that I do if they're curious. But my friends have been incredibly supportive. I mean, even the friends that I've had since before powerlifting, once somebody's in your life for the long haul, they're in your life for the long haul regardless. So one of my dearest friends, I was actually a second shooter for her wedding photography business for a couple of years. And early into my powerlifting career, she actually came to my local gym and even like shot some cool pictures of me and things like oh, that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Our, often my, my friendships and relationships have kind of morphed with it. And in fact, some of my greatest friends that I know I'm going to be hanging on to for a long time in my life, I actually met because of my involvement in strength sports. So that's been incredible. Probably one of the hardest things though, honestly, comes back to the, that eating and that concept of making weight. I've given up my own celebration of my birthday and not had birthday dinners and birthday cake and things like that because of competing the following weekend. I've taken meal preps to like Thanksgiving dinners and I've weighed out my meals with my family. So things like that are particularly difficult, especially like I have an Italian family. So my mother's like, what do you mean you're not eating my big old plate lasagna? Of course you are. Exactly. Well, that brings in, yeah, again, the food and that discipline and also the cultural pieces that we know, whatever culture we have, we have food as a part of it. And there are favorite dishes that we have within our family that are cooked and ate and like part of that tradition. So like not being a part of it and coming to your own level of acceptance with that, I'm sure is, I mean, every holiday, every meal is something to consider there. Part of it is recognizing too, like what is an appropriate cycle? And for me, this has been really important. You know, I was very all in. When I first cut down from the 57 kilo weight class to compete as a 52, I would not deviate from my diet plan. I knew exactly what I was eating, when I was eating. I weighed every macro, every morsel. That's why I said like the broccoli. I would weigh my rice cauliflower 
to make sure I was eating what I intended to eat. But then this past year, I actually tore my knee. I had something that was called a bucket-handled lateral meniscus tear. So my lateral meniscus, the kind of the cushioning in between the bone inside the knee joint, it tore longitudinally parallel to the entire outside of my knee. And then not to be outdone, it kind of rolled up like a taco inside of the knee joint. Oh my goodness. Yeah, my leg was actually stuck in a bent position. Evidently, I have been having a kind of a weird issue with my knee my entire life. Evidently, I had had that same tear kind of in and out ever since I was a teen. So as soon as I went to see the orthopedic, they immediately braced me in an immobilization brace. I had surgery a week later and I was totally non-weight bearing and immobilized for six weeks after that surgery. And so that I knew it was going to be a significant change. Like there's no escaping the atrophy that you're going to face with that prolong of a period, you know, being away from the sport. And I recognize that, you know, okay, this is my time to step back. It's okay for powerlifting to not be my primary focus for my identity right now. It's not to say that it's not who I am. It's not to say that I wouldn't love to get back on the platform instead of just, you know, sitting next to it, refereeing like I get to do now. But it kind of gave me that opportunity for that cycle and that ebb and flow. So at this point, I took a step back and I focused on living my life with my family. And I went on vacations. If my husband wanted to order pizza on a Friday night, I said, all right, let's have some pizza and beer tonight. It's going to be great. And kind of letting go of that need to hang on to my body weight and hang on to kind of that competition mindset. And so then I had a second surgery in August. And I said, okay, this is going to be an even longer break than I thought it was going to be. So again, you know, I kind of regrouped thanks to my therapist again, who gave me so many strategies to get through these massive setbacks that I had last year. And again, I was able to kind of reframe and focus on those other more social aspects, those food-related aspects. And I'm actually okay with it now. You know, I can look at myself and like, I know I'm not in my weight class. If any of my competitors want to listen to this, nope, I am not 52 kilos right now. So when I bet 200 pounds here pretty soon, I'm not doing it as a 52 kilo lifter right now. But that's okay. I mean, it's a part of life. And as much as I love this sport, it can't be my everything. That's just not sustainable. That is so powerful and important and inspiring for many that when there are injuries, it can be just as much of a mental toll and a physical toll on how you deal with that atrophy, how you deal with that ability to not be able to be with your community in the same way that is so important to you. So let's talk about what are some of those approaches, frameworks, or skills and strategies that your therapist talked to you about to help you with that? Because I think it's so healthy. It's a nice shift knowing it's temporary. You can be an other aspect of yourself right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. So if you could share, that would be great. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So to be honest with you, the primary thing that my therapist has done with me, because this is just what works, she knows that I like to be a very detailed and critical thinker. I'm actually looking at applying for doctoral school, finally going back and going for that third degree. I'm a very analytical person. So she's always turning the tide on me and kind of asking me questions. And for me, I'm able to kind of replicate that and ask myself questions. So like, let's say I'm looking back on pictures or videos from competitions and I start to feel myself kind of sinking into that I don't look like that anymore. I can't lift like that anymore. Who am I? I can step back and say, okay, am I helping myself right now or am I hurting? So what am I actually getting from this event? So kind of on one hand, giving me questions and strategies that I can kind of go back and ask myself. 
another thing that we've done a lot of is kind of reassessing who are those people that are in my life? Like who are those people that are in my corner a hundred percent? No ulterior motives. No, they're not in it for themselves. No, who are the people that are there to support me and help So we've done a lot of breaking down of those relationships from people who kind of come and go in your life. And so that's been incredible as well. Those are huge. I mean, I think she's helping you build self-awareness. I mean, we want to not have a job one day. (laughs) You know, like we want to be able to work with the client to a certain point and be like, you know what? Fly, be free. Like you know how to do this and or reevaluating the goals and then still staying in relationship. And that could just look a little bit different or the cadence of the sessions could look a little bit different. And you knowing how you feel and knowing what it is you're doing something for is staying mentally healthy, staying emotionally healthy. And then the social circle is a big pillar of optimal mental health as well, because you need positive people around you to support who you are and to support you unconditionally. And like you said, not want something from you all the time and be able to be yourself, whether you're competing or not, whether you're injured or not, whether you're resting or not, like it's loving you unconditionally. And so building that board of directors, sometimes I call it, or like your team behind the team is so key. So she's doing good work. You're doing good work. I'm proud of that. It's awesome. It's really inspiring. Is there anything else you want to make sure you you share today that we didn't really touch on? I mean, we touched on so many important concepts, your experience, your story. It's so inspiring. I just don't want to leave anything out. One thing that always comes to mind, because I think it's something that commonly occurs, well, I guess it really should be commonly, but often does, and sometimes too often can occur with strength sports. It's kind of the, the idea of persistent pain and working through something like that. That's actually one connected with so many people. And, you know, I told you about some kind of acute things that I've gone through with suffering with my knee tear and surgeries. But when I broke my back when I was 15 years old, that is an uncurable, essentially disability that you have for the rest of your life. So honestly, if you're ever up for a second conversation, because this would be a whole thing all by itself, but talking about things like resiliency and coming back from persistent pain, those are, I'm so passionate talking about those things, but there are conversations where I don't know how you kind of get into it. Like a lot of people look at me and they see my smile and they see my pet and they're like, oh, she is so happy all the time. No, I'm not. No, trust me. I'm really not. Like ask my husband, like he sees this together anymore. But I think finding that sense of resiliency is just finding kind of the flexibility and the permission to kind of sit with those frustrations whether it be something like a temporary setback due to an acute injury, a long-term disability or pain, whether it's something related to body dysmorphia, or even, I mean, frustrations with your progress in your training or the outcome of a competition that you're in, being able to sit with those negative feelings and still continue to exist through them, I think is a huge topic for strength athletes in all regards. Now that's huge because you're talking about the chronic low-level injury that still is there on top of then you add the acute injury and like, oh my God, there's such huge stressors and can impact the mental and physical health of a person. And how do you respond to that stressor? How do you then manage around it, work with it? It's a part of you now. And so how to cope with it? It's an acceptance 
that sometimes we want to fight against. I wish it was this. I wish it was that, but it's not. And so how do we be in the emotion, but then know that we're empowered enough within our brain and our mental health to shift how we feel about it? Like one day we're going to be totally human and be like, this effing sucks. Like my back is killing me. And this is not how I want to be right now and how I want to feel and realize that and be in it and be honest. And then when the time comes before we start to spiral down, we can put in a strategy or technique to shift us from there with the help of our social circle, right? Yeah. And I think it comes to, you know, that's where we talked about kind of finding the right therapist to work with to identify a strategy that works for you. Like I know that there are times where far too often I wake up in the morning, I'm already in pain. I can't even roll over, get out of bed. And there are times where I'm like, it's fine. I've got this and I keep going. And there's other times where I've learned that I've been like, okay, I've got to set a timer for about five minutes. And you know what? I'm going to wallow in it. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to be mad. I'm going to feel sorry for myself. I'm going to complain that it's not fair because it's not fair. You know, whatever hand you've been dealt and the frustration that you have in your life, it's not fair. Nobody deserves to have bad things happen to them. So I'll just live in it. I'm going to sit in that moment and feel every one of those emotions. And when that five minutes is up, all right, this situation isn't changing. I'm not going to be in any less pain. So if I continue to wallow in it at this point, it's just going to continue to bring me emotional distress. So for me and for my emotional health, I have to recognize that, okay, I'm going to sit with my frustration. I'm going to sit with that physical pain, but it's time to live through it now. You know, I gave myself that sense. Life isn't stop just because I'm frustrated. So I've got to find a way to sit with those feelings while I continue to go about my day. Yes. No, that's such an awesome technique. I hope people are taking notes right now. Like that's allowing yourself the time, but limiting it. Like I work with my athletes too on like worry time. It's the same thing. If you're worrying about something or anxious about something, allow yourself to feel it. You have to move through it. Like you're saying, right? We can't repress or push down or avoid. That's just going to cause a whole other host of issues physically and mentally. So allow ourselves to be human, give ourselves compassion and move through it to the other side. That's a huge tip. That's really, really great. I love it. And I think that goes back to the idea of being able to be present and mindful and grounded in whatever situation you're in at a given time. So I think so often we live in this culture where it's, you know, I've got to go, go, go. I have to be here. I have, you know, for my friends, like, oh, I've got to get my kids up. I've got to take them to school. I have to do this. I have to pick them up when I get to my job. Now I have these things that I have to do. And it's this constant stream of stressors and responsibilities that's keeping our biochemical parts of our body on overload, like our cortisol is skyrocketing. Often we forget to take that time and kind of ground ourselves. You know, where am I right now? What do I feel right now? What do I smell right now? What do I taste? You know, being able to be in that moment, I think so often can be the most beneficial way to help us to kind of get through those more difficult times by thinking about everything we're experiencing as opposed to the one hyper-focused issue. Yes. Yes. Because that's daunting to think of everything. And in competition and in life, it's so important to be in the moment and to train our brains that it's okay to be in the moment, that whatever adverse emotions you might have, it's temporary. So yeah, we could talk for a whole nother... Like when you (laughs) messaged me earlier, it's like, wait, we only have like 45 minutes. We could talk about this. Should we start earlier? I was cracking up. We'll just roll with it and see where we go. Like, yeah, we should probably start at noon. That'll give us a good seven and a half. We'll be fine. We'll get it all in. 
Well, Teresa, this has been not only super informative, but inspiring and fun. I appreciate you being here and sharing your story, all the ups and downs. It's important for people to hear that athletes who compete at a high level also don't feel good sometimes, also have to work on our mental health and emotional health on a daily, regular basis, that it's not to be excluded and that we might have to up it or change it when injury occurs and that a social circle, supportive spouse, partner is super important. And I just really appreciate us getting to talk about everything that we have. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me on and getting the chance to talk with you. And of course, thank you for helping me find my therapist too, to help me figure out a lot of the things that I've got now the chance to share. I feel like an echo box here. So thank you. Yes, you're welcome. My pleasure. It's I will never turn anyone away from my time and energy who wants to find someone because it's already taken you so much to get there to want to find someone. So if there's anything I can do to help... I'm happy to do so. And I'm so glad that I was able to and that it's led you to where you are and to be a small part of your journey is, is really special to me. So I appreciate it. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at sportsepreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Sports Epreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide.